Welcome to the new episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Show is hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, and we want to welcome you to our fourth season, Haunted New Orleans. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we suggest you start listening to the Haunted New Orleans season with episode 53, which is where this season begins and where we set the stage for what's still to come. In each episode of the season, we'll be revealing the history, mystery, spirits, scandals, and sins of New Orleans, a city we believe is the most haunted in America. So light some candles, lock all the doors, and get ready for the next episode of Haunted New Orleans. In the early 1900s, if someone in New Orleans mentioned the haunted house, everyone knew the place they were talking about. It was and is the best-known haunted house in the French Quarter, and yet its name was seldom mentioned in those days. There was no need. Horrible things had happened there, horrible enough to earn the house a reputation that still lingers more than two centuries later. But did all the events linked to the Lalaurie Mansion at 1140 Royal Street actually happen? Were they truth or fiction or a clever mishmash of the two? If you have the stomach to listen to the next two episodes, well, we just might find out together. There's no way to talk about the horrors that were said to have occurred inside of the Lalaurie Mansion without first talking about the horrors of slavery, an affliction that came to New Orleans in 1719 and has refused to completely let go of the city even 300 years later. The first Africans came to New Orleans as slaves while the city was still being built. In the first two decades that followed, more than 7,000 of them followed, most destined to live their lives in chains. New Orleans attempted to set itself apart from other southern cities by enacting a series of laws that would prevent the mistreatment of slaves. It was signed into law by Governor Benvila, who called it the Code Noir, or the Black Codes. These rules made New Orleans a less oppressive place for blacks to live in, say, than areas dominated by the British, but regardless, it was still slavery. The so-called Black Code contained 53 specific regulations regarding the care, treatment, and general conduct of slaves and even free blacks, of which there were many in New Orleans. They were usually former slaves or often black immigrants from the Caribbean. Between 1840 and 1860, census records show there were over 7,500 free blacks in the city, and the initials FPC, which meant free person of color, began to be used after their names, and after the names of any person of mixed race who might be mistaken for white. As oppressive as the system was, New Orleans offered free blacks more rights than any other American city, allowing them to own property and to seek justice in the courts. The Black Code was a strange document, even by the standards of the era. To start with, it called for the removal of all Jews from the colony, which had nothing to do with slavery. It also specified that all blacks had to be baptized into the faith of the Catholic Church. The rest of the document was supposed to be designed for the betterment of the relationship between slave and master. Provision was made for elderly slaves and hospitalization for those who were injured. No work was allowed on Sundays or holidays. Rigid rules were set up against forced marriages and breeding, and marriages between slaves of different masters. 
The separation of families, especially removing children under 14 from their mothers, was discouraged. Penalties for slaves who violated the codes were brutal. First offenders had their ears cut off and were branded on one shoulder with the floor to lee. A second offense caused a slave to be hamstrung. A third offender was executed. If you were a white master who was convicted of cruelty to your slaves, you were likely to have them taken away from you. So it was not exactly equal punishment under the law. Mass meetings or fraternizations among slaves from different households was outlawed under the Black Codes, except for certain circumstances. Records show that as early as 1805, Congo Square, which is now Louis Armstrong Park, was a grassy area on the edge of the swamp just outside of the French Quarter. It became a place where slaves were allowed to congregate and gather for religious ceremonies. Officials believe these were gatherings for Catholic worship, but they weren't. It was actually a way for slaves to keep their African customs alive and for people from various tribal groups to create a common bond through music and dance. A few years later, the immigration of slaves and former slaves from Haiti served to introduce new tribal customs to the Louisiana slaves, which was, of course, the beginnings of voodoo in New Orleans, which we'll delve into more deeply in later episodes. The Black Codes condemned excessive cruelty by slave owners, but the punishment for such cruelty against white masters seemed to be loosely applied and administered. Despite the apologists who want to convince us today that slave owners were businessmen who didn't want to destroy or abuse their property, there's no question that men who owned other human beings were not adverse to being cruel. Slaves were beaten and flogged for a variety of offenses, for lying, laziness, talking back, being late for work, or mixing with white people. Rumors spread of slave owners who were unusually cruel. One man, Valsin Mermillon, was said to punish his slaves by placing them in a coffin-like box, stood on end with nails hammered through it so the person inside was unable to move. He also took pride in the fact that he only purchased the very best slaves. Once he bought a young man who was said to have been of exceptional size and stamina, he hooked him up to the front of a plow instead of a horse and ordered him to work the fields. When the slave refused to perform, Mamillion made him dig his own grave, stood him in the hole, and shot him in the head. Throughout the 18th century, slaves poured into New Orleans. In 1808, though, the importing of slaves into the United States was outlawed. However, New Orleans was exempted from this law until 1812. Even after that time, slaves were brought into the city from other southern markets because they could fetch such a high price in the New Orleans slave markets, which were held in various parts of the city including in what is now Jackson Square. During these sales, auctioneers would dress the slaves up in European clothing to make them, quote, less fearsome. While many of the slaves sold in the markets were taken from the ships that docked in a nearby port to the plantations located outside of the city, it was still a fact that many people who lived in New Orleans owned slaves. In those days, blacks, even free ones, were still looked down upon as lower-class citizens. But here's where things get messy. There were very few New Orleans families, such as noted in the last episode when we discussed the Casket Girls, who could make the claim that their family contained no one of mixed race. One of the city's preeminent cultures was the Creole. However, this was a confusing title since two separate groups claimed it. 
White Creoles used the word to describe themselves as people of European colonial ancestry. They were the descendants of aristocratic families who traced their ancestry back to France and Spanish colonists. In other words, they were the ancestors of the casket girls, you know, not the prostitutes and prisoners that had been cleaned out of France's prisons. The other group that claimed the title of Creole was the light-skinned part African Catholics, once referred to as mulattoes, quadroons, and octoroons. Many of them had the same surnames as the white Creoles and often traced their lineage back to the same ancestors. Both groups used that title to set themselves apart socially from other residents of New Orleans. So race was, and remains, a funny thing in New Orleans. Far too many people who have grown up in the city can trace their roots back to places that might surprise them. But the point of this is, is that even what were regarded as white citizens in New Orleans were shocked by reports of the cruel treatment of slaves in the 19th century. No one knew for sure if they might be related to the people who were abusing their slaves or if they might be related to the people being abused. It was in this climate that the horrific stories emerged from within the walls of the LaLaurie Mansion in April of 1834. And to understand what was happening, we likely need to take a look at the woman at the center of the controversy, Madame Delphine LaLaurie. She was born Marie Delphine McCarty into a wealthy New Orleans family around 1775. Her family boasted a mayor, a governor, three chevaliers of the French crown, Irish nobility, several slave traders, and some of the most prominent members of the growing colony. They could trace their roots back to the very founding of the city, a city that, although many hated to admit it, had largely been created by thieves, cutthroats, and whores. But Delphine's family was among the aristocrats who came to power after the colony fell under American rule in the early 19th century. They were among the families who filled their homes with imported furniture, the finest Persian rugs, crystal chandeliers, and the best French wines money could buy. They were seldom touched by the unclean conditions, the illnesses, and the crime that plagued most of the city. They were among the elite of New Orleans, a wealthy Creole family that was part of the city's preeminent culture. Culture. Delphine McCarty was definitely a part of the city's elite. If there had been any hint of her dark future in her early years, her family would have kept it well hidden. Likewise, if she had been abused in some way that would have affected her mental state, it would have been a closely held secret. There's nothing written about her childhood that would lead anyone to believe that she would become a monster, but somehow she did. Delphine's father, Bartholomew Louis de McCarty had married Marie-Jean Lavoble. The union produced two sons, Jean-Baptiste Francois and Bartholomew Louis, and an uncommonly beautiful daughter, Marie Delphine. There is little known about her early years, only that she was a beautiful child. Accounts of her charm and beauty followed her throughout her entire life. Delphine grew up in a typically wealthy Creole home. The family owned a plantation north of the city and a house in the French Quarter. She was a happy, sociable girl, and neighbors spoke of her visits to their homes. 
The McCarty Plantation was a popular spot for parties and for visiting dignitaries, which would have given her plenty of practice when refining her manners and charm. As the daughter of a well-bred family, she would have been taught to read and write, but the bulk of her education was likely in music, art, and etiquette. She would have learned what she needed to know about running a household from her mother. In that era, Creole girls were introduced into society at the age of 15 and usually married by the time they were 16 or 17. For some unknown reason, Delphine was not married until she was about 24. It may be that her marriage was not late at all and that records were poorly kept, meaning that her birth date is wrong, or it could be the sign of a greater problem. Perhaps in spite of her beauty, Delphine was seen as a difficult young woman and one for which a suitable husband was hard to find. No one knows for sure, but her first husband turned out to be a controversial and prominent figure in the Spanish government that ruled Louisiana at the time. Delphine's first husband was Don Ramon Lopez Angulo, the public administrator of Louisiana, who had taken office on January 1st, 1800. Likely introduced by her aunt Celeste Miro, the wife of Governor Miro, Delphine married Don Ramon on June 11, 1800. They were wed in the St. Louis Cathedral with her parents as witnesses. Little is known about their marriage or even about Don Ramon Lopez. However, there are quite a number of his letters in the St. Vrain collection of the Missouri Historic Museum's archives. Most of them are correspondence between Lopez and the last Spanish lieutenant governor of Upper Louisiana. Based on the letters, Lopez was constantly worried about money and even pushed to have the slave trade expanded in the Louisiana Territory. He was concerned about the lack of manpower to keep the crops and the money moving into governmental accounts. His request was denied and his frustration about the lack of funds is evident in subsequent letters. He seemed to be a man who was deeply invested in his job, or so it seemed. But Louisiana historian Arthur Preston Whitaker discovered the opposite. He wrote that Lopez's papers were in utter confusion when he left his position in 1801, due mostly to his lack of interest in his work. Lopez was a pensioner of the Royal and Distinguished Order of Charles III. He'd married Delphine without the permission of the King of Spain, which was against government protocol, but was something that had been done by other Spanish officers in Louisiana before him. Even so, why Lopez would have done this is unknown. It could have been that he was so taken with Delphine and her beauty that he couldn't resist her, but more likely her family's finances and power were too good to pass up. His actual reasons will never be known, but he paid a heavy price for his rash decision. For violating the law, he was stripped of his office in 1801 and ordered to return to the Spanish court. Lopez pleaded extenuating circumstances and pointed out that other officers, including Governor Miro, who was Delphine's uncle, had committed the same offense, but it was to no avail. The Bishop of Louisiana attempted to intercede on his behalf, but it didn't help. For some reason, Lopez had angered the king. He was exiled to San Sebastian on the northern coast of Spain. Lopez surrendered his office to Don Juan Ventura Morales and prepared to depart for Spain. But before he could leave, his successor noted serious problems with the accounts and brought an accusation against him before the Spanish ministry. Lopez filed his own complaints against Morales and the case became mired in legal delays and litigation. In the midst of it all, Lopez once again asked the court to suspend its decision against him. 
But as it happened, Spain had actually ceded Louisiana back to France in 1800, but still held a strong presence in the area. Simply put, they were just managing things for the French. And this kept the Lopez and Morales complaints swirling about in the court system for almost three years. Eventually, Lopez returned to Spain, bringing Delphine with him to fight his legal battle. On March 26, 1804, Lopez was finally pardoned by the Spanish government for marrying Delphine without permission of the court. The case brought against him by Morales was thrown out and he was again given a government position in New Orleans. Legend has it that Delphine was the one who managed to sway the Spanish court in her husband's favor. She allegedly obtained an audience with the queen, who was so taken with Delphine's beauty that she granted her petition. Well, what really happened is unknown, but we do know that Lopez died during the return trip to Louisiana. During a stop in Havana, Cuba, which was a common port on the way from Europe to New Orleans, Lopez passed away, leaving behind a pregnant Delphine. She gave birth to a daughter, either in Havana or on board the ship. The records really aren't clear. The girl was named Marie-Francois de Boya de Lopez y Angulo, although she was nicknamed Borquita, a variation of her great-grandmother's name. The girl, noted for her beauty, was educated in Europe and eventually married into the Forstall family, which became one of the most prominent families in New Orleans history. In 1808, Delphine, now probably 32 years old with an eight-year-old daughter, married a man named Jean-Pierre Paulin Blanc, who would come to New Orleans in 1803. He was reputed to be an important man in New Orleans' business and politics. Stories say he was a handsome man with dark hair and eyes, and after marrying Delphine, the family moved into a new home at 409 Royal Street. Over the course of the next eight years, the couple had four children. Marie-Louise Jean, born in 1810, Louise-Marie Laure, born in 1811, Jean-Pierre Paulin, born 1815, and Marie-Louise Paulin, born in 1816. Borquita, Delphine's daughter from her previous marriage, also lived in the household until she herself was married. On the surface, Delphine and her family appeared to be living the respectable, comfortable life of a wealthy Creole family. But where Jean Blanc got his money, well, that's a bit of a mystery. In the book Old New Orleans, author Arthur Sisby wrote... Jean Blanc, once a well-known figure in Old New Orleans, merchant, lawyer, banker, legislator, and, this was told in whispers, the man higher up in certain transactions relative to the importation of black ivory and goods upon which custom duties were not collected. Blanc earned this distinction during the hectic days before the Battle of New Orleans was fought, when slave smuggling activities of a swaggering company of Baratarians under the leadership of Pierre and Jean Lafitte, sometimes designated as pirates, were at their height. According to history, mixed wildly with rumor, Blanc was engaged in the slave smuggling business in New Orleans. Slavery importation had been outlawed in the United States in 1808, but New Orleans was exempted from this law till 1812. In spite of this, many continued bringing in slaves illegally. Blanc's name appeared more than 350 times in the slave schedules, buying and selling slaves. It was also widely known that he owed boats that were used for smuggling and privateering. He was on the New Orleans City Council, but his main claim to fame seems to have been that the pirate Jean Lafitte wrote to him for assistance when Lafitte was negotiating with the American military to help them during the Battle of New Orleans. The implication is that Lafitte and Blanc knew one another very well and likely had engaged in quite a bit of business together already. 
Gluck was not merely a crooked businessman and a friend to pirates. He'd come to Louisiana as a public servant with Louisiana's last French governor, Pierre Clement de La Salle. In 1804, he had attended the meetings that transferred the Louisiana Territory to the United States, so he must have been a man of some influence. Lassat used Blanc's commercial house for financial transactions for the French government, which gave Blanc a hefty commission for every transaction. As New Orleans grew, so did Blanc's role in a variety of offices and organizations. He was named as one of the officers of the new Masonic Lodge in 1812 and was instrumental in gaining American protection for the city when a British invasion threatened it during the War of 1812. After the war, less was written about Blanc, but it's likely that he continued his questionable business practices, buying and selling smuggled merchandise and slaves. Then in 1818, Blanc either died or disappeared. No one seems to know what occurred, but he was gone, leaving Delphine with four children to raise on her own. There's no documentation of his date of death and no notice in the newspapers of the era. If he ran away due to his various problems with the law, there's no mention of that either. His death was just never mentioned, but according to legal papers filed in July 1819, Delphine was back to using her maiden name of McCarty. There is no question that Delphine thrived during her marriage to the volatile and rather mysterious Jean Blanc. She lived in a grand home and had more money than she could possibly spend. Whether she knew about his illegal activities or not is unknown, but in all likelihood, she did. She'd grown accustomed to a way of life that was grander, perhaps was even grander, than she'd known as a child. And her newfound freedom as a second-time widow allowed her to become a well-known fixture in the city's Creole society. Then on January 12th, 1828, Delphine married Dr. Leonard Louis Nicholas Lalaurie, who had arrived in New Orleans from France in February 1825. Lalaurie's birth date is unknown, but it falls somewhere between 1771 and 1800. It's alleged that he was somewhat younger than his new wife. He was born in Aquitaine in France and after attending medical school, eventually graduated from dental school in Toulouse. After he finished school, he prepared to immigrate to Louisiana. Although not much is known about Dr. LaLaurie's personality, there are dozens of letters between he and his father that are still housed with the Missouri Historical Society. His father, Francois-Jean LaLaurie, wrote to his son about every two weeks. There are also a number of letters between he and his sisters that seem to have had a loving and warm relationship with them. There is no indication that he was anything other than a kind, personable young man, although a rather poor medical student. LaLaurie kept a detailed record of his journey across the Atlantic to America, but noted nothing unusual about the trip. He departed on December 8, 1824, and arrived in New Orleans on February 13, 1825. About a month after his arrival, he sought to establish a medical practice in the city, which was a little odd since he'd only fully completed his studies in dental school. In a newspaper advertisement, he stated he had graduated from an accredited French medical school, and while not entirely a lie, it definitely shaded the extent of his degree. The practice of medicine was largely unregulated in those days, though, so it wasn't unusual for doctors who studied in one field of medicine to randomly switch to another, as Dr. LaLaurie did. Even so, a switch from dentistry to surgery seems to be quite a leap. Dr. LaLaurie and Delphine became acquainted at some point in 1827 and were married early the next year. Their son, Jean-Louis, was born in 1828. 
The Lollaries moved into the mansion at 1140 Royal Street in 1832, four years into their marriage. The house, a beautiful two-story Creole-style building, had several balconies that allowed air to circulate through the house and a beautiful shaded courtyard that was paved with bricks. The house had been built in 1831 and was one of the finest in the French Quarter. The Lollaries lavishly decorated the home, filling it with rich furniture and fine art. The couple threw lavish parties, which often saw them featured in the society newspaper pages of the day. Delphine was the queen of Creole society, a woman to be admired, loved, and envied. For years, she had been handling her own business affairs and was respected for her intelligence and her style. Her daughters were among the finest dressed girls in New Orleans. Those who received her attendance at her wonderful gatherings could not stop talking about her. Guests in her home were pampered as their hostess bustled about the house, seeing to their every need. They dined on European china and danced and rested on oriental fabrics that had been imported at great expense. One of the things that nearly all of her guests recalled about her was her extraordinary kindness. But this was the side of Delphine that her friends and admirers were merely allowed to see. There was another side. Beneath her beautiful and refined exterior was a cruel, cold-blooded, and possibly insane woman that some only suspected but others, namely the slaves who attended to her house, knew as fact. There is no record to say that Dr. LaLaurie ever actually established a medical practice in New Orleans. However, there are a number of receipts written and requests for LaLaurie's services kept in historical archives. One acquaintance wrote to LaLaurie for assistance with a slave who was sick, and LaLaurie billed him for a potion. It should be noted that slaves were often the test subjects for a variety of untried medical potions and remedies. This was not illegal, nor even considered unethical. Another client asked for a tooth to be removed and LaLaurie later billed him for the treatment. He was apparently working from home, which was not uncommon at the time. Curiously, Dr. LaLaurie is mostly left out of the accounts of the atrocities that occurred in his home in 1834. He's occasionally mentioned as one of the perpetrators, but mostly is seen as a background figure, hidden in the shadow of his wife's overpowering evil. This is strange, considering that in some erroneous accounts of the horror, medical experiments are mentioned. Since he was a doctor, who would have been more likely to conduct such experiments? He should have been the likely suspect as a doctor, but he never was. Perhaps this is because, in all the true historical accounts of the terrible events, no medical experiments were ever mentioned. It's my personal belief that Dr. LaLaurie was truly an unwilling conspirator in the events that occurred both before and after April 1834. The Lollaries continued their privileged life during 1832, but then a strange incident took place on October 26th of that year. On that date, the Lollaries petitioned the court to free a slave they owned named DeVence, who was a, quote, Creole of Louisiana of about 40 or 45 years of age. The petition was granted in August 1833. Eight months later, Delphine and her husband would be revealed as the torturers and possibly murderers of slaves. Well, what could have happened to cause them to free one of them? While the record remains unclear, I have an idea, primarily based on what happened soon after. On November 16, 1832, less than one month after the court petition, a summons was issued to Dr. LaLaurie, who was residing away from New Orleans at the time. In the summons, Delphine petitioned for separation from
from her husband. She cited that, quote, through a series of ill treatment from the said Louis Lalaurie, that indeed the said Lalaurie acted toward her for a long time since in such a manner as to render their living together insupportable. Delphine swore that Lalaurie beat and mistreated her on October 26, 1832. She asked to be allowed to separate from him and for the court to let her remain at the house on Royal Street. Judge Joshua Lawn signed an order that allowed her to sue her husband for a legal separation. Now, it remains a mystery as to what happened that day, but it was serious enough to convince Delphine to separate from her husband, which was an uncommon occurrence in those days. Note the date of the alleged beating, October 26th. This is the same day that the Lalleries were recorded as petitioning the court for the freedom of the slave defense. What happened? Anyone who could say for sure is long dead, but based on what happened later, I have a theory. I believe that Dr. Lalaurie did in fact beat his wife that day as a response to her brutal treatment of the slave. I believe he put a stop to her attack on the man and went as far as to strike her to prevent her from doing serious damage to the man. Lalaurie was so shocked by her actions and perhaps by his own that he abandoned his wife and moved out of the house. Well, at some point, he had a change of heart. It may have been his wife's legal summons or perhaps something else, but he soon returned. Delphine never went forward with the case against her husband. I believe that the freeing of defense was likely the price that Delphine had to pay that ensured her husband's silence about her cruelty. Or perhaps Dr. Lalaurie freed the man out of guilt for allowing the cruelty to occur in the first place. Once again, we'll never know for sure. But we do know that the mistreatment of slaves was considered a pretty serious offense in New Orleans in those days. The Black Codes had been a effect for almost a century, and while punishments for slave owners who mistreated their slaves was not very serious legally, it certainly looked bad in the city's social circles when so many people could trace, if they wanted to, their ancestry back to those who came to New Orleans in chains. For the most part, local residents did not look kindly on those who abused their slaves, as the Lalleries would soon discover. Those who attended the grand parties at the Lalaurie House often spoke of the quiet gracefulness of the family slaves. Nearly as elegant as the guests, these slaves went about their work with silent skill. They moved about the house like shadows, rarely speaking and never raising their eyes. There were those who wondered about them, and perhaps this is how the rumors began to circulate. It's more likely, however, that no one spoke of Delphine's cruelty until after the incident in 1833. Years later, people whispered of the brutality that they never suspected and the terrible treatment they'd somehow missed. She kept her cook chained to the fireplace in the kitchen, the story said, forced to prepare the sumptuous dinners that they had enjoyed. There were also tales that were much worse, stories that went beyond mere cruelty. It was a neighbor on Royal Street, a man named Montrill, who first began to suspect that something was not quite right in the Lalaurie house. There were whispered conversations about how the Lalaurie slaves seemed to come and go quite often. Parlor maids would be replaced with no explanation. The stable boy would suddenly just disappear, never to be seen again. Montreux made a report to the authorities, but even though he was a friend with a number of prominent people, nothing was done about it. Then in late 1833, another neighbor was climbing her own stairs when she heard a scream and witnessed Delphine chasing a young girl across her courtyard with a whip. The neighbor watched the girl being pursued from floor to floor until they at last appeared on the rooftop. The child ran down the steeply pitched roof and then vanished. 
Moments later, the neighbor heard a horrible thud as the small body struck the flagstones below. Late that night, the woman claimed that she saw one of Delphine's slaves carry a bundle into the courtyard and bury it. She believed it was the body of the young girl, but that was never proven. She told her story to the police, and this time, action was taken. The Lollary slaves were impounded and sold at auction. Unfortunately for them, though, Delphine coaxed some relatives into buying them and then selling them back to her in secret. She explained to her friends that the entire incident had been a horrible accident. Some believed her, but many others did not. And the Lollary's social standing slowly began to decline. The story spread about the mistreatment of the Lollary slaves, and uneasy whispering spread among her former friends. A few party invitations were declined, dinner invitations were ignored, and the family was soon politely avoided by other members of Creole society. Finally, in April of 1834, all the stories about Delphine Lollary were finally proven to be true at last. Be sure to return for our next episode when we'll explore the horrific stories along with the truth of what was found in the Lollary Mansion. And we'll also explore the many ghost stories about the place that caused it to earn the reputation as the haunted house of New Orleans. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words
Okay. And if not, it just sounds like disembodied. Well, there's spooky <laughs> voices. That's, that's that true. But you ready? Yep. All right. Thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings Podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You are tuning into our fourth season, which is titled Haunted New Orleans. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey there. What's up? Hey, not too much. Just enduring November. Yeah, it's <laughs> terrible. It's miserable. It's so cold. Well, it... it you know, it's not supposed to be this cold this early. I, I don't know. Think. What the hell? I don't know. So I saw a lot of funny memes of you know R.I.P. Fall, and it mm-hmm. had like two days, right, a de- right. birth date and a death date. So you know, we did get some fall. Let's be honest. This year, more than we have gotten. I At least it wasn't a hundred degrees up until you know. No, see, I'll take that. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, at least then it didn't go to thirty oh, degrees right, or right. twenty degrees or whatever it was. Well, so I, when I walked out of my apartment the other morning, it was thirty-seven degrees, and I was like, it's not too, not too bad <laughs> I know, right? today. Like, I was a, excited when I saw it was going to be in the forties. Yeah, you know, I'm like, wow, this rather is awesome. Quickly. So, yeah, yeah. But, well, we didn't get any snow. Where I. I got, got lunch. See, I didn't get any snow on Halloween. A lot of people did. And I mean, I was in Utah. Yeah. And we had snow a couple of days before. But you want to talk about cold. Oh, It was yeah. really cold there in the mountains. It's, it's a dry cold? <laughs> yeah. It was a dry cold, but man, it was cold. It was great during the day, but as soon as the sun went down, holy cow. Mm. Yeah, it got cold. Desert so, town. Yeah, it was, it was cold. Uh, well, you got, something, you got something going on tonight. What are you doing? Uh, I am doing an, uh, dinner with the Limp family tonight. Nice. So yeah, we've got another one of those coming up in January. We've got, um, we posted all the dates for our evening with events mm-hmm. for the winter and spring and uh, we have a evening with the Limp family. All the ones we did the, in the fall sold out like two months in advance. Yeah. So that we put that first on the schedule for January 11th. We've got another one. We had a uh, a night, an evening with the St. Louis Exorcism, and that sold out in January. So we added another one in April. Uh, but we're doing the Bell Witch. We're doing the Spirit World. We're doing the Missing Lizzie Borden. All that kind of stuff. Um, those evening with things are a lot of fun. I I really enjoy doing them. The food is always good. But the dinner. And uh, I actually enjoy getting up and talking about this stuff. Well, obviously, (laughs) here we sit talking for hours at a time, uh, talking about the stuff that interests me. And if I can get other people interested in it, too, it's just it's a lot of fun. So, um, yeah, we invite people to to check out the schedule we've got coming up, uh, AmericanHauntings.net. Just check out the website. And for one of these upcoming events, like one of these evening with it, I'm going to wear an outfit one time. Are you? Play a character. (laughs) I'm going to get really involved. You should do like, you should Dinner come theater. to the St. Louis exorcism one and you could be, you know, the possessed boy Ooh. and, you know, like in a hospital gown yeah. and, and manacles. Cause I'm already crying most days <laughs> yeah, and yeah. just freaking out. Yeah. So you could just come and act out all the scenes. That would so, be, that'd yeah. be nice. I want yeah, I want to be dinner theater. <laughs> it would be dinner theater. You that's know? for sure. Yeah, it uh, would be. Oh man. I don't know how people would feel about that, but. I did a winner we have at our live broadcast. Don't forget, yes. we do a live show for that. So that's and sort it's of free. that's sort of dinner theater yeah. in a way, except without dinner. Should I it's wear sort of theater? And it's, it's more like breakfast. Uh, should I wear an yeah. outfit? Well, I don't know what we're. I haven't decided on what our topic's going to be because you know it's outside of what the podcast right. is. Right, so, do something cold though. Yeah, I always try to do a winter-related thing. So yeah. I'm sure this one probably will be too. I'll but, be Jack from Titanic. <laughs> probably not going to do Titanic. Although I guess. 
guess I could, but because there are ghost stories, but I probably will not. Although right. That's not a bad idea. You know? Actually, now that you think mention it, it's not really not a bad idea. Right. Anyway, that is February the 8th of 2020. And uh, we are beginning, uh, just think there are only seven, or no, less than that. Time people hear this, there'll only be like five weeks left in this decade. Damn. And then we begin the roaring 20s. Right. Just so that should be, and everything. should be fun. Anyway, February 8th uh, is our Dead of Winter Festival, our annual event. Uh, we do it. Uh, at the Mineral Springs in Alton. Uh, admission is canned food or a non-perishable item. It's for a good cause. It is for a good cause. Um, we usually talk about that, but the uh, food banks in the area start running out of stuff post-Christmas. People aren't donating as much once the holidays are over. So they start running low on things. So we always try to plan this you know, a couple of months after the holidays so that, you know, we can kind of, and believe it or not, we really give them a restock on this thing. Oh, a ton of um, stuff. Our, our ghost people are very generous people mm -hmm. and they bring much more than one item normally. But we have, you know, several thousand pounds of food and, and items. And that's something that we always talk about as it gets a little closer. It doesn't just have to be food. People need paper towel, toilet paper, light bulbs, things you might not even think about. Um, as long as it's a non-perishable item or a canned item, bring it because yep. people can use it. Uh, anyway, we've got a bunch of after-hour events and stuff connected with that. And uh, those you have to sign up for in advance and pick up your tickets at the event. But you can check that out at AmericanHauntings.net too. Um, you'll find that stuff there. You'll find the conference there. Um, tickets go on sale for that January 6th, which will be here before we know so it. So soon. I know it. And uh, we've got another big year planned. Um, a great you know, we've got a great lineup of speakers, a great lineup of events. We've got all the after hour events and all the new brand new workshops. Mm -hmm. um, nothing that we've ever done before. All the workshops are brand new. So it's going to be another really great year. And hopefully people are excited about it. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we hope to see year. everybody there. Yeah, no, I'm, I always look forward to it um, way ahead of time. And we, we talk about it, too, but I always have like a conference hangover where I'm sad. Oh, I know. We're, I know. All my friends it's, leave. Yeah. Because again, it's one of those things where a lot of these people we only see once or twice a year. Mm -hmm. And so we get to hang out with them for, you know, three or four days, depending on when we show up yeah. for everything. And then it's over for another year. Yeah. I hate that. So, but yeah, then we try to turn that a couple of weeks later into a vacation. So, sure. which we're going back to New Orleans again. So, really? And by then we may actually be done with this season. Wait, I don't know. Well, Wait, we're say. going back though? Yeah, we are going back oh, in nice. July. So, yeah. Wait, you mean the royal the wheat, like everybody? Yeah. Yeah, okay, not cool. just us. Okay, so, well, I, I mean, didn't you, know. Yeah, no, we're going to do the invite with, yeah. Hell so. yes. Okay, I had so much fun last time. Yeah, uh, it's oh, going to be fun. It's great. It's just, it's an amazing city. And we get to talk about it we for do. weeks. We get to talk about it for weeks and weeks. weeks I don't even think, end. I'm not even sure we'll be done with the season by the time we go back. It would be kind of cool. We'll have to cool do something down there. Yeah, we'll have to do something while we're down there. Maybe we can talk to some of our friends that are down there that do like, the hey, tours? that do the tours and stuff. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could get some of them to talk a little bit on, you know, some of our bonus episodes or something. Yes. That would be fun. So, yes. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that later. All right. <laughs> yeah, we're getting everybody in, involved in our behind the scenes planning. So I apologize for that. <laughs> and Troy so. and I just spent like probably 30 <laughs> minutes together, not on mic and didn't talk yeah. about any of and this And none of all. that. Yeah. We waited until we got back in the show. Uh, so anyway, yeah, well, anyway. let's, okay. Let's talk about what other people had to say. Let's jump yes. into some oh, listener yeah, reviews. Okay, great. So because of the way uh, iTunes has broke things out now, I can't 
it's really hard for me to get listener views. I can't copy and paste them. I have to take screenshots. Oh, and yeah. And to see all of them, I have to click on them and and take a screenshot. But when I do that, the titles are cut off sometimes. Oh, So yeah. you'll know, when I put your name and half your title together, you'll be able to figure it out. <laughs> but we still really appreciate the, the listener views. It really helps people find our podcast. So this first one's called Weaving Storytelling and Ghost dot, dot, dot. Uh, and so these are and these are the long ones too, by the way. So okay. this has quickly become one of my favorite paranormal shows, including TV and other formats. The podcasters wow. weave history and paranormal seamlessly. Started listening as I was looking for Velisca podcast, and they've done a better job of delving into the history than any other source out there. I've been fascinated with the house and story before it gained national prominence on Ghost Adventures. I had my own paranormal experience there on a day tour. I heard a disembodied voice of a child. It was a full sentence, though unfortunately I couldn't make out what it said. Myself, my husband, and friend were only people in the house. It was a very cool experience, and I only wish our audio recorder had done a better job of picking up the voice. That's from uh, Seriously Crappy is <laughs> the name, but thank you very much for the, for the review. Next one's titled My New Favorite Podcast. Found this gem thanks to Astonishing Legends. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Uh, I'm a completionist, so I've started from episode one. I'm already hooked. Your transition music from history lesson to co-hosting reminds me of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and that's a good thing. <laughs> okay. It lightens the mood, prepares the listener well, for a lighter season conversation. Season one, I don't even know what it's... I don't even remember what it sounded like uh, at this yeah, point. Do, 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 do. Um, okay. Anyway, I love history, and the intros <laughs> don't disappoint. Here's to hoping it just stays seamless and interesting all the way to the latest episodes. That's from Spooner Girl. Thank Thank you very much. That's from Halloween, actually. Oh, okay. This next one's titled Great Podcast. I just started listening last week and have reached the Limp Family Part 5. As a descendant of German immigrants, I am very pleased with how you have righted the wrongs, done uh, the fake history that has been perpetuated about the Limps, and I love the excellent job you've done in relaying the true history. I hate, however, that you omitted the in-depth discussion on the beer, though. Beer has, <laughs> beer has been present at every family gathering. I know. I say that every time. I say that when I talk about them, too. It's like, right. I could spend another hour talking about what lager beer is, but sure. no one wants to hear that. Well, so. and if I talk about well, beer too she much, did. people yeah. get upset. So <laughs> beer has been present in every family gathering and uh, events since I was born and learning about it was truly interesting. Keep up the excellent job of providing true history because it is interesting enough without false embellishments. Sincerely, Laura. So thank you very much uh, for that. The next one is titled Excellent Content, Excellent Pre... Dot, dot, dot. So... I don't know, maybe. I I could look it up. Um, I'm very happy to have found this podcast. Presenters are easy to listen to, their voices voices are well modulated. The scripts sound professionally written. It's you, you're a professional. (laughs) It's my job. Uh, They're serious without being too dry. If I were going to nitpick, it would be the keyboard music that (laughs) underscores much of the spoken words. Very amateurish, almost like Mr. Rogers, but without the charm. I'm dealing with it because it's uh, just barely a great podcast. Um, so it's funny. Some people like it because it sounds know, like Mr. Some Rogers. Don't. Some people I, don't. I like to have someone in the background. You, the, the reason, uh, here's, a, here's a behind the scenes. Sure, yeah. This is a how you make the sausage thing. We have to put that in there sometimes. We, I, I feel like we need to put the music in behind that because... There are sometimes where we have background noise that we cannot get rid of. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I uh, I record that the the monologues in my office, and I've got a really nice setup now, thanks to our Patreon people. Yeah. In all honesty. Um, I've got a nice setup for it, but there's no way for me to control the trucks and motorcycles mm-hmm. that sometimes go by. So by having something in the background behind the monologue, it, that stuff you guys don't have to hear. Right. Um, that will we can replace that. It's it's complicated, but that's kind of the 
short version of why we do that. I think it helps break up the sections yeah, I do a little too. bit too. And I, I do too. I, I kind of like having it back there. Um, I, I understand what he's saying though. Oh, totally. I, I totally, totally get it. Of course. So we, we keep working on that. Um, still give us five stars. Yeah. 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 But oh I, yeah. No, no, I'm not. Criticism, yeah. No, I, and I, and about. I agree with it. I'm not even, you know, disputing it. I just, this is the reason for it. There it is. So, yeah. So thank you for writing. And that's um, from OK Maestra, I believe. Uh, this next one, only a couple more left. A uh, great podcast. This podcast is so interesting and thorough. They go in, into several episodes, deep dives, and uh, don't just focus on the spooky stuff, but spend a lot of time talking about the actual history and backstory of the events. Yes, thank you for yes. noticing. The only thing I don't like is how Troy talks over the other guy that reads the end credits. <laughs> the other guy. Oh, man. You know well, what? You I know bet what? that if other I guy doesn't get like so it either. I'm so tired of hearing the same thing. It's over at least and it's over not again. as long this season. That's so, true, but know. get you get ready for it because it's probably gonna happen <sighs> today. Know, I'm sure I'm gonna get tired of it at some point. But I do want to say that's from this. The uh, username is this game sucks. Corporate shill. Well, you know what? He's probably the only person that listens that long anyway. So no <laughs> so one else does. So 100 not true. Okay, okay, this last review is titled "Great Show." It says, "Well, I do like the format and content. I actually find myself listening to the first portion of narration." and skipping the discussion between the two hosts. It's not bad discussion. I would just rather listen to a narration about a story with the creepy music backdrop than the other stuff. Once again, both hosts are great and the podcast is awesome. Just some thoughts. And I included this one because... Oh, I think that's, that's okay. totally fair yeah, feedback, sure. you know, no, yeah, yeah. and it's, yeah, it's great. Uh, we, we try to do both because I've listened to both that when we started this, this was the idea is that, you know, we'd heard a lot of podcasts and I don't like personally, this is me personally. I don't, my favorite ones are not one or the other. I don't want to listen to just a monologue mm-hmm. and I don't want to listen to just two people discuss. Right. Um, that's not to say that there's not a lot of great ones out there because there are. Sure. And I and I listened to a lot of them. But when we did this, when Cody came to me and talk, started talking to me about doing this podcast, I wanted to do something that combined both. I thought there was like a, a gap in yeah. the market kind of for yeah. doing I thought both. doing both would be fun. And yeah. so we, you know, and Cody said, hey, I got a lot of questions, so I want to ask you questions. Totally. You, I'll ask the questions, you answer them, and we can talk about what we talked about in the monologue. Because we do, and this is in all honesty, we, we do... And unfortunately, they've probably already turned off. But if they haven't, if you haven't, right. that we do sometimes add things to the monologue in our discussion that yeah. were not part of the story, that I will explain something or go into greater detail mm-hmm. that I couldn't do as a narrative. It's not just a straight yeah, because it would Right. It would be a jarring thing for me to, I mean, I do sometimes jump in with things usually just a comment or a line, but um, an explanation I don't always do. So yeah. we usually save those. I get to pull so, at those threads yeah, a little there, bit more. Yeah, there are, there are, I think, things worth hanging around for. I mean, I know we're not funny, but no. we, we. I know we try to be, but we're yes. usually not. But, uh, yep. you know, um, anyway, that's that's the reason we do it. Yeah. And I get, I totally get what you're saying. Uh-huh. I do. Yeah. And I totally get it. Not upset about yeah, it at all. No, I feel me like, either. Oh, I can, I can, if I could imagine listening to your monologue and then just being satisfied with that and not having a thousand questions that I wanted to bug you about. <laughs> yeah, you could, yeah, it wouldn't work for you. That'd but, be great. Yeah, but I know I, I totally know. get that. And, yeah. but I also think about some of the podcasts I listen to that are just monologues. Now I wonder would I, I think I actually would want a Q and a session afterwards, yeah. but maybe not all the time. It's I don't know. Fun. I don't um, know. But yeah, I think I it know. was very polite, constructive feedback. Oh, yeah, so I, I wanted to no complaint it. for me. Um, awesome. Okay. okay. You ready to dive sure. in? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, so, okay, so we were in New Orleans last year. We took a little tour around yeah. this area, walked outside this building. I got some pictures. You got some pictures. Like I said, saw it on American Horror Story. Yeah, very fictionalized version. Yes. Right. Well, <laughs> uh, there were some discrepancies between that show and your book, and I really had to <laughs> yeah. try to reconcile that. Well, that is my that. favorite season, but still. Right. Yeah, I and, know. And uh, also, a previous owner of this home was Nicolas Cage. Well, but we're going to talk more. We'll talk about, about that, that next episode. Uh, yeah. And that guy, he, he's all over New Orleans. Well, in the the tomb. Yes. And I'll probably probably just go ahead and we get all of our Nicolas Cage out in the next episode. Okay. I'll probably mention the that tomb too. too. The tomb too. You're not going to say that for the cemetery. Just to say, no, episode. I don't think so because okay. it it isn't worthy of mention. Uh, that's that thing is an atrocity. Well, agree to disagree. Um, yeah. Come on. I like Nicolas Cage, <laughs> but. You know, He's ridiculous. Yes. Anyway. Uh, okay. So early 1900s, Lollery Mansion. Eight. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> 1140 Royal Street. Uh, wait. What, are, what were you going to say? Nothing. I thought we were. I thought you were jumping in at the wrong spot. But oh. you. You aren't. You're not. Oh, I had oh, already sh- scrolled up, and I was like, no, no, no. She lived there in the early 1800s. But yeah. Right. right. I, I know. Start. I know. Start at the beginning. Yes. Uh, like I said, we we have some pictures from uh, from last year. I'm going to post yes. them probably in the show notes somewhere. You'll be able to see them. But it's a it's a beautiful beautiful it home. Is. Yeah, it is. Um, so New Orleans. It hasn't always been. It. Um, it was restored a, a couple of times uh, in the 70s and restored again. Well, restored again when Nicolas Cage lived there. Right. Um, and then after as well. But um, in the early 1900s, it was in fairly rough condition. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that it became known as the haunted house, and that's what everybody would call it. They never called it that by its name. It mm-hmm. was just the haunted house. It was the one there. And everybody the knew that that's the one they meant. Got it. Yeah. So New Orleans is a quote from your monologue. New Orleans attempted to set itself apart from other Southern cities by enacting a series of laws that would prevent the mistreatment of slaves. It was signed into law by Governor uh, Bienvilla, who called it the Code Noir or the Black Code. Well, that was nice of them. You know, yeah. um, it's like, you know, you know how they give you the alcohol swab right before the lethal injection? Yeah, it's kind of the same kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it, it was to make themselves feel a little better. Of course. About what was going on. And, you know, I this at this episode, the first half of this episode, we, we couldn't not talk about the history of slavery in mm-hmm. New Orleans because it is such an important part of the history of the city and not in a good way. Yeah. Um, and I do talk about the, you know, the FPC people, the free person of color people in this too. Um, but New Orleans is such a weird city because slavery dates back to the very beginning of the city. They were already bringing in slaves. And by, you know, the 1840s that were over you know, 7,500 free blacks in the city were thousands of slaves by this time or had had been brought through the port. Many of them went on to plantations, but it was always such a part of the city. But like the casket girls that we talked about in our last episode, um, so many people were descended from the slaves that were brought in and that became a whole you know, um, hierarchy of its own. If how much blood you had, we'll get into that. Yeah, yeah. we'll and and in another episode later, we'll get into um, really the depths of the different codes mm-hmm. and the different levels of whether you were a quadroon or an octoroon or these kinds of things, because this all mattered. This was all part of society at the time, and the Creoles, as I mentioned in the monologue, um, came from two different. Areas. They were people who were descended from European, you know, immigrants or 
prisoners and prostitutes. Sure. Uh, but they were one part of high society. The others were a mixed race high society. And they all blended. And that was, I guess, one of the reasons why they enacted these codes. Um, they were started originally by the governor in the early days to try to keep slaves from being mistreated. But like I point out in the monologue, people in New Orleans didn't want to mistreat their slaves for the most part because for as all they knew, they were related to them uh-huh. because of the way things had already mixed so much. Interesting. So it's a very strange city when it comes to race. Yeah. Um, it's not... I find, and this is my experience, and what am I, I mean, I've only got so much I can say about this being a white person who doesn't live there, but um, race is interesting in the city um, because the people within the city, it's, it's, I find, in my experience, it's not a super um, racist city these days. Mm -hmm. Um, The problems come in from outside of the city um, when people look at it. Okay. And, and see it as a racist city rather than the people who live there. It's, it's, a very, it's a very confusing subject, but it's something that we needed to talk about because to understand this story and the levels of hatred that were directed at the LaLaurie family, you needed to see what was going on. And slavery and prejudice and racism is going to be a part of how the outside world sees New Orleans and always will. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's going to take us right back to the Katrina episode that we're talking about later. It's going to be all about the same thing. And it's that's unfortunate because this city could be. I think for the people who live there, they see it differently than people from outside. But this city could be the perfect example of a a great mix of people who created something awesome. Yeah. Because the food itself comes from so many different directions. You know, so many different things. There are so many levels to the food. And we'll talk about that. That's going to be an episode two. We'll talk about haunted restaurants and things. Um, Because, you know, you find all these influences um, like, like Vietnamese food is a lot like Cajun food and Creole food because mm-hmm. the French were in Vietnam for so many years. And so you've got all of these different influences and you've got a lot of Vietnamese who live in the area and fish in the area. And there's just it's such a, a melting pot mm-hmm. of people and that's what makes this city so cool. Um, but, you know, it's always going to be an issue because that's, you know, you had a... A, a larger population of slaves living in the city than you did slave owners mm-hmm. for the early years. And there's always going to be that. And it's going to, it's going to affect a lot of our episodes. Sure. You will find that, that race does. And I think that this one, especially, and listen, this was not, this was not a fun first half yeah. of an episode to get through. Um, because really this is, it, it did. And, you know, and, but end. it was stuff that we needed to talk about, especially when we're talking about the, you know, the, the Lollary story. Right. Um, race is so much a part of it and, and talking we'll about, yeah. And talking about, the slaves and being sold at markets and how they were treated and, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the effect that slaves from the Caribbean had on the slaves from Africa that mm-hmm. were here originally. I mean, that's what makes this city so great. Yeah. But on the other hand, what a horrible way for it to have gotten started. Of course. You know, if all of our immigrants or all of our ancestors had come here in chains rather than as immigrants, this would be a completely different country. Mm-hmm. If African-Americans had been brought here or had come here as immigrants willingly, 
this would be a different country that we live in, but it really made New Orleans a different kind of city. Right. And it had a great effect on it. And sure. it's not in, in now in a lot of good ways, but at the time, what a horrible way. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you, you talked about the codes and you talk about the things that, you know, that you could do. And sure, it made, you know, New Orleans a less oppressive place than, you know, the 13 colonies, mm-hmm. you know, where run by Britain. But slavery is slavery. It doesn't right. matter if it's less oppressive slavery. Right. It's still slavery. And it's still awful. It's still bad. Sure. So a couple of things I want to go in with this. Uh, the code initially, well, also, I, I started out to say, to be, a, to be a free person of color in this area, I feel like it'd be like being a civilian in a war zone. Like, are you ever really safe? Yeah, exactly. Because, you know... Um, Free people of color in if different parts of the country would often find themselves kidnapped and sold into right, slavery. Of course, um, in New Orleans, it was a little different. And again, just for that same reason, mm-hmm. is because people were all interrelated, and mm. so it was a little different when you had someone who was a you know as they called them at the time a, a quadroon who was one quarter black. Sure, but you had okay. to keep track of that right. because well, you had, what had papers and stuff. Well, you or? yeah, you would have to have you'd have to know exactly what you were, and these were different levels of hierarchy God, as which far we'll as talk about later. Right. Sure. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Okay. But, um, yeah, it was a, it was a weird situation. Mm-hmm. It was a very weird system, different than anywhere else anywhere in the else. country. Yeah. And so, and so the black code, you said initially it will, at one point it, it called for the removal of all Jews. Yeah, from it was the a colony. weird paper. It was a very was weird like document. When you add amendments to bills to try yeah. to just get yeah. them through. So we just kind of shove this in at the beginning. Let's get rid of all the Jews because, well, you got to understand that this was, uh, and that, all, all of the blacks in the colony had to become Catholic, mm-hmm. which yep. we'll talk more about that when we get into the voodoo yes. section and we start talking about religion later that. on. But um, yeah, same kind of thing. They mm-hmm. would stick these different parts in to say, oh, yes, this is the Code Noir and this is going to take care of the slaves. But oh, by the way, right. you know, here's a couple of other little items. Uh, and so you talked about penalties for violations of the code. Um, I Googled what hamstrung was. Oh, yeah, it's not good. And I wish that I hadn't. Yeah, exactly. It was absolutely it's not horrible. a great if, beginning so to the season. Don't look episode. it up while you're at work. Uh, no. But if, you, if you're curious, you should. Don't you don't want to know? Um, so mass gathering to keep you from running away. Well, essentially, it's yeah. effective hobbling. Yes, is another yes. word for it. You know. Mass gatherings of slavery were, were prohibited, but they were allowed to use Congo Square, which is current uh, Louis Armstrong Park, mm-hmm. for religious ceremonies, which were supposed to be Catholic, but were actually a way for them to keep their African customs alive. Well, it was also a lot of a way for them to mingle together. Sure. As far as you know, it was a you know socialized social experience. Yes, and eventually we'll dive more into yeah, we'll talk more voodoo about and all, later, and all right. that sort of stuff. Uh, when I first went to New Orleans, I think I was nine. Uh, my dad got me a voodoo doll on the trip there. I'll post a picture of it. My mom was so pissed. Um, I still have it. It's great. I was I was so happy. But um, and you mentioned some people will say uh, you know slave owners they were they were oh, just yeah. businessmen you know come on fuck that. Yeah, um, I, I, you know, I, I've heard that. Well, I've heard that argument popping back up, but it's an argument that I've heard many times mm-hmm. from people. Oh, you know, yes, they were property, but you know, no one wants to. You know, I, I actually heard somebody come out and say, well, you know, you're not going to go out and you know, you, you know, because your your truck didn't start in the morning, you're not going to beat it with a baseball bat, are you? It's the same thing. No, you know what? It's not the same. No, thing. not at all. You know, I understand they were property. That's not a good thing. Right. And you know, they want to tell you, oh yeah, they didn't. They didn't beat their slaves. They didn't abuse their slaves. Oh, yeah, right. Sure, they did. Yeah, of yeah. course. I mean, it's, again, it goes back to the 
uh, yeah, oh, this was less oppressive, but it's still slavery. Well, I was just yeah. I was thinking <laughs> when on. I was initially reading this, I was like, so if the slave, okay, so they have more rights, quote unquote, if, right. the, if the slave says, no, I'm not going to do this. Oh, what? That's where it ends. Right. Like, exactly. No, of course not. Exactly. That's so, you know, exactly. it, you're just, they're trying to cover up for feeling like they're doing something terrible because they are yeah. doing something terrible so they can maybe sleep at night or whatever. But anyway, uh, Valsen uh, Mermillion was a particularly cruel slave owner. Yeah, he's often used as an example of, yeah. you know, here's why here's why the codes didn't really work. Uh, besides Madame Lalaurie, this guy is often used as an example. Right, right. So he's a terrible person. Um, you already went over that. I don't want to dive <laughs> yeah, into it. we don't need to do that. But again. so something I didn't know, though, in 1808, though, the importing of slaves in the United States was outlawed. And it was a little, a couple years later, what, 1812 or whatever, before it happened in New, New Orleans. But I didn't know that. I didn't know this happened in 1808. Yeah, yeah they, they made it illegal to continue to bring in. There was already, by this time, uh-huh. there had already been a lot of people who were organizing abolitionist movements to mm-hmm. stop slavery. Which that's where- Take 50 that's some years where for the war. Prior to, prior to this, there was slave owners all up and down the 13 colonies, mm-hmm. in the North as well. Uh-huh. And eventually that began to be moved, and eventually they created the, the line- you know, where it, uh, stopping at Maryland and North would be free and South would be below that. And all of that stuff just slowly began to change. That was sort of the beginning of it. Did each but that didn't stop people from bringing in slaves. Oh, of course. Well, people I mean, it was illegal, that. but yeah, you could still make a lot of money. So the people were smuggling slaves, as we'll talk about, as we did talk about later on, that was one of the, the husbands sure. of Madame Lalaurie. How did, how did the laws work then? Did each colony make its own laws or was there a federal kind of thing eventually? How eventually, there was a federal there was a federal decision began to be made by this time we actually had a country mm-hmm. rather than individual colonies yeah. you know we had you know a federal government by that time and they just decided that they were going to abolish any more slaves coming into the country um, this was something that a lot of countries were doing by this time. Mm-hmm. A lot of the European countries had also had slavery, and they had decided to stop it. And so they decided to stop it in the United States as well. But slavery was still legal mm-hmm. up until the Civil War sure. in the South. Well, it's building the country, right? right. Why would well, they outlaw it? And that's it? the way that they looked at it, yeah. and that's what destroyed so many economies after the Civil War is because the South had built their entire economies on free labor. Sure. You know, and now that free labor doesn't exist anymore, they fell apart. Yeah. So let's talk about the Creole culture. So the the race was and remains a funny thing in New Orleans. So you touched on it a little bit, but can, yeah. you, can you, I'm still confused on this. Can you walk me through this a little bit more? About the Creole, you mean? Yeah, and how the well, works it's, the it's, it's a it was the preeminent culture of New Orleans at the time. I mean it and it still is. I mean it's still it's still part of the culture of New Orleans. And there were two separate groups that claimed the title. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the people who were descendants of European an, uh, ancestors who came to the either as colonists, they all wanted to say. Um, they were usually a wealthy upper class and they you know, were descended from the white Europeans. Mm-hmm. And then there was the other side who were usually light-skinned because of the mixed races. Mm-hmm. And they were um, usually Catholics and were either completely 
African descended or at least partially. Um, and that's where it got into mulattoes who were half black, half right. white, quadroons that were a quarter, and octoroons that were an mm-hmm. eighth. And these were all things that you had to keep track of. And in, in a later episode, we're, in, in a couple episodes, we'll talk about the octoroon balls and how that culture worked among the Creoles. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, a lot of their ancestors were the same people. Sure. White and black. And, but they were, the, they were the wealthy. They were the elite ruling class of the city, which at that time was mostly the French Quarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were the elite class. And so that's, you know, when you, you, you know, are talking about who the people are that had all the money in New Orleans, it was the Creole. All right. So, well, speaking of wealthy class in, in New Orleans, our subject of this episode is uh, <laughs> Madame Delphine Lalaurie. She was born uh, Marie Delphine McCarty around 1775 to a wealthy family. Uh, I was really unaware of the Irish influence yeah, they have in a, New Orleans. A really big influence in New Orleans, and a lot of people don't realize that. But the McCartys were uh, really like the ruling class mm. of the Irish. Uh, and there is an Irish Channel that is just a little along the river from the French Quarter, mm-hmm. and they've got their own section of the city. Huh. And they were a, a pretty major influence like the Italians were mm-hmm. um, a little bit later. The Italians came later, but the Irish, you know, I think paved the way by, you know, Bloody O'Reilly, right, you know, right. and they ended up, they've got their own part of the city as well. And mm-hmm. they, you know, were major players in the politics and the business communities. And that's how she ended up with a family that had a mayor and a governor and, you know, nobility and all of these important people in her family. Right. Uh, that's why, well, and that we'll get into that, but her story is a lot more layered and nuanced than you get on your average ghost tour of New Orleans. Sure. When you hear about Madame LaLaurie, all anybody wants to talk about were these alleged things that happen. And and in the next episode, I will sort out truth from fiction. I mean, don't get me wrong. This woman is a monster. I'm not, I'm not saying she's not, but there are a lot of things that have been credited to her that did not occur. Mm -hmm. And you can forget about everything you know about her from American Horror Story because, yeah, because there isn't anything that's true about that. (sighs) Kathy Bates. She's, it's a fun character in the show. Sure, of course. And and it is it's based on a real life character, but none of that is is accurate. Got but, it. Um, there is. I mean, but don't get me wrong. I mean, as we've already started to see hints of. Yeah. In this story, she's definitely got some screws loose for sure. And yeah. I learned from this that a, what a chevalier is a French knight. Right. Okay. Right. So yeah, would would have appreciated a heads up on that one. Well, it, it sounds good though. It does just say yes. So, and that's a word I could pronounce. I like it. So Again, I'll apologize for my French. Again, <laughs> this episode, so it's, it's bad. Uh, oui, oui. So, there's <laughs> there's nothing written about her childhood that would lead anyone to believe she would become a monster, but somehow she did. Uh, accounts of her charm and beauty followed her throughout her entire life. I'm guessing there have to be, like, paintings of her There are. Something. There are. Yeah, there are she paintings that exist. I mean, I guess for the time. You're right. Okay. You know, but yeah, there are paintings that, that still exist. I'll have to check it out. Um, she may have married late at, like, 24. Right, or something. Right. Don't really know. But her first husband was uh, Don Ramon Lopez Iangulo. Yeah, it's he was uh, part of the, the Spanish lot. government at right. the time. Public so. administrator of Louisiana. Don't know a lot about him. Seemed to be worried about money. 
they, mar- they married without permission of the king of Spain, which was a no-no. Right. So he's exiled Got to, into a lot of trouble. San Sebastian on the uh, northern coast of Spain, but eventually he's pardoned, essentially. Uh, but then he dies on the return trip to New Orleans, yeah. leaving behind a pregnant wife. Uh, they have this daughter. Um, Borquita. Yes, Borquita. That's her nickname. And then so it's Spanish I can handle. It's see, the French. I, the, it's, <laughs> this is, again, this is why New Orleans is so interesting because the Spanish and French right, just I know. brought it up. And we'll I see know. it in the same name sometimes. Oh, yeah, here. yeah, absolutely. Uh, so she marries her second husband, uh, Jean-Pierre Pauline Blanc, in 1808. They have four children. He probably made his living smuggling slaves and helping pirates. Right. And right. then he, we don't know if he, when he, died, <laughs> he just, just disappears. disappears. Yeah. So he either pieced out or was killed. Right. Um, now he, and he played a lot. He played a pretty pretty major role in a lot of the things in the early 1800s. Okay. Involved in, you know, with the Lafitte's and the Battle of New Orleans, which we'll talk about later. Yep. And we talk about the pirates. Uh, so he was involved and had a hand in a lot of things. And what's really fascinating about all this is because... At the time, the Louisiana Territory was so big Mm -hmm. that I was able to actually see some of these letters and stuff a few years ago just across the river in St. Louis because they're all at the Missouri Historical Society. They're at the Historical Museum because that was Louisiana at the time. That was part of the territory. Right. And so a lot of the letters and things were sent to St. Louis because that's where the command for a lot of this was. Yeah. So some of this stuff is not hard to find. Mm-hmm. And then they also have a collection in New Orleans that is open to the public for research too, which is is really awesome. It's a really great place. So that's where I saw like the original newspapers, which I'll talk about in the next episode mm-hmm. because that does change the story from what a lot of people have heard. Yeah. The popular version of the story is not actually the accurate version of the story, so Got to speak. It. So I'm curious about, so 1818, he disappears. Uh, she's not like shunned for being a widow twice over or like n- she can just keep getting well, married. She had so stuff. much money. Is that, is I that mean, the family had so much money that right. I mean, she was very wealthy and much wealthier than either of her husbands. Mm-hmm. She can just do um, she and, well, all three of her husbands, she always had the money in the family. So, I mean, essentially, I guess you would say that in a lot of ways, she, I mean, wore the pants. Right. She's not because, looked down upon. Right. For, I mean, she had been handling her own business affairs, mm-hmm, got it. which, um, believe it or not, uh, in this society actually gave her status. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is at a time period where women weren't usually encouraged to handle their own business affairs, yeah. but she did. And, and she's recognized for it. Right. And each time that you find someone who does today, we look at that and go, wow, you know, that's really great because of the time period that it was. Mm-hmm. But this was just something that she did a second nature. And um, I think that most of the, you know, the deals, the real estate, the, all of that was was all her mm-hmm. uh, because her her third husband was, I, I, we don't know much about him. I mean, what we do know about him doesn't seem great. He mm-hmm. seems like kind of a drip. Um, yes. But on the other hand, it, it looks like, or at least that one time, he definitely stood up to her. I, that's sure. my theory anyway so, of yeah, so, what happened. So let's that. talk about so. this. So she marries a third husband, Dr. Leonard Louis Nicole Lallery in, in 1828. Uh, he's probably a lot younger than his wife. He's a dentist. Uh, who <laughs> who becomes a surgeon. Right. Yeah, which I, which I really you know, enjoyed whatever. that. You just come and remake. Well, but that's a, that was America. Sure. That was what you did when it's you came dream. to America. You remade yourself. Right. You know, and, and that's what he did. You mentioned no indication he was a bad man. Uh, they have one son. They move into the mansion at uh, 1140 Royal Street in 1832. Uh, but 
And so one of the things you said, one of the things that nearly all our guests recalled about her, there was that she was ex- uh, her extraordinary kindness, but there was another side to her. So slaves were often test subjects for a variety of untried medical potions, remedies. Back but, in those days. But you yeah. still say it's your personal belief that Dr. Lallery was a truly unwilling conspirator in the events that occurred before and after uh, April 1834. That's, that's what I think. And, and I really? base that. Let's I, I don't that. think, well, I don't think that. You know, by him giving, you know, selling a potion to a friend of his that has a sick slave mm-hmm. is not the same thing of, you know, all these experiments. And, well, you know, what, we I don't want to get too far into mm-hmm. our next episode, right. but I'm going to tell you yeah. that these stories about the experiments aren't true. Really? Yeah. So Ouch. I will I will give you the real story taken right from the newspapers at the time mm-hmm. And then try to, I, I've tried to find where this story got so out of hand yeah. and I'm not sure where it is, but somewhere along the way, and I'll, I'll talk about it cause I do, I will delve into that in our next episode, right. a little bit more how these stories change so much. But again, don't get me wrong. This woman was horrible. Sure. Um, and the reason that I don't think that it was him, I think it has something to do with this situation with this slave that they freed, mm-hmm. which was very odd. That's not something that you would expect from the Lalleries. And this is a part of the story no one ever tells. Right. Uh, but this is, this is part of the story that he was freed and- it happened at the exact same time that Madame Lalaurie decided to sue the doctor for mm-hmm. separation because she claimed that he beat her. Right. And I think he did. I think that she was mistreating a slave and he probably lost his cool mm-hmm. and maybe even, you know, struck her. Um, and maybe he really did beat her. But whatever happened after the slave was let go, um, they patched things up and he moved back home again. Right. So, you know, I don't know. I, this is just like I said, this is a theory looking back, you know, what, 200, almost 200 years. Yeah. Trying to guess what might have happened. But it kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and believe me, he had to have known that she was not a kind woman. Right. As things progressed. But on the other hand, I'm not sure he was actively involved in it because later he sort of just disappears from the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at some point he leaves her um, after this stuff all becomes public. He doesn't want any part of it. Uh, but again, that's our next episode. Sure, okay. So I don't want to get too deep into that. All right. So. Well, do you think he disappeared into the ground of no, the backyard? No, no. I just think he, no, <laughs> no. I just think he he parted ways Got with it. her. Well, yeah. so, so the neighbors noticed that the, the Lollary slaves changed quite often. Yeah. One even claims to have seen a body, body fall and get buried. Um, so and I've always enjoyed the story about, or not enjoyed, you know what I mean. <laughs> right. um, I've always been interested in the story about the cook being chained to the fireplace. Yes. Because that will become an important part of the next episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's something that people had noticed. And now people were starting to talk mm-hmm. because of this incident. First, this this neighbor start, w- raised a complaint because he had become suspicious mm-hmm. about slaves coming and going and disappearing. And probably the, the woman who'd been chained to the stove who lived in the kitchen, literally lived in the kitchen, mm. um, and raised a complaint, but nobody really did anything about it. Now, he's going to be the guy who says, I told you so in right. our next episode. But um, but then there was the neighbor who saw uh, Delphine chasing the, and in some versions of the story, I've, I've read it both ways. In some, it's a little girl. In some, it's a little boy. Mm-hmm. I've heard it both ways, but 
both of them involve a small child who falls from the roof of the house right. um, after being chased. And that's, I think, what kind of pushed things over the edge. And she was reported. And, you know, the codes were in place for a reason to keep people from mistreating their slaves. But the punishments were yeah, know, yeah, not really yeah. not a big deal. I mean, she did. Their, their slaves were taken away, but then she just got her relatives so to buy they them were, back. They were impounded, like, yeah. like their cars. Right, exactly. Well, yeah, because they were property. property. Yeah. Uh. So they took the slaves away and put them up for sale. And then she had relatives that just bought them back right. and then gave them back to her. Right. Um, which she got away with mm-hmm. because they were high class. They sure. were society class. I mean, that was, that was, they were the 1% of New Orleans, right. so to speak. Right. You know? Yeah. Cash so, rules, everything. Right. So finally in April of 1834, all the stories about Delphine Lalaurie were finally proven to be true at last. And that's where we're going to pick up yes, for part that two. That is our cliffhanger. We will have a second part to the Lalaurie story. I so. can't wait. And that's, that's going to be where things get gruesome. Awesome. I just, I'm just so. really excited to talk about Nicolas Cage. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and we will get there, I promise. <laughs> I promise we will get there. Uh, all right. It's now time for our Ghost Riders segment. If you have a comment or question about the world of the macabre, you can email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. Our first email comes to us from Katie. She says, I've been listening to your podcast episodes on the Limp Mansion all day today because <laughs> Halloween and decided to send you a photo that I took back in 20, uh, 2009, I think, when I stayed there with a group of my mom's friends. Uh, I'll post a pic if, if she lets me. Um, and then she also just said uh, she hopes that we have a great Halloween. Cool. So we did, and I appreciate it. And thank you for yeah. sending in the pic. Um, this is an audio medium, so it doesn't really do me a lot of good to tell you about, about right it now. right now. Um, but yeah, there's some weird stuff going on in Amir and she oh, sent cool. us the, the picture, a little story. So I will post that if she approves that. So thank you for writing in. Uh, this other one is from uh, our good friend Ian from the UK. And he basically just said, hey, uh, like he really likes the movie review stuff that we do. And he oh. said, would you do a horror movie review for the end of the year? And I, I was thinking oh. about maybe for like a bonus thing or something. Yeah, um, I didn't even so, think about that. So, so far this year, I've seen 91 new releases. Yeah. And not all horror movies. No. Though. But Although seven, I have seen a lot of horror movies. 17 of them have been I've horror movies. Myself. So if we wanted to do a bonus thing like that, maybe we could. I yeah. don't know. We'll have to, we'll yeah, it's not it. a bad idea. We could just do it as a fill in between our regular episodes, yeah. maybe. And I always enjoy doing those. I'm going to have to look back and see what all I watched. Yes. But I did. Yeah, it's kind of depressing for 2019, but is it really? there's some good ones. I think I saw some decent ones. Yeah. Well, that's where I saw Incident in a Ghostland, again, that I forgot to tell people uh-huh. about after our other episode. So I'll just save that. Okay. And I could talk about it. Yeah. Later. So, so we, yeah. Might, we might do that. So yeah, thank that you very much. Thank you very much for writing in. Uh, we have a couple of Patreon shout outs. Uh, for Joe, Joel, MJ, Darcy, and Zach. So thank you very much for giving to our Patreon. Yes, you awesome. help us keep doing what we want to do. And if you want to see what other stuff we have to offer, you can go to patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap this up. I got to go talk about the limps. You do. I do. So we will wrap this up and thank everybody for listening and for Sharing this with your friends, as I always ask you to, if you are enjoying the new season, and I hope that you are, um, please pass it on. Let people know. Leave us a review on iTunes. And uh, we are just getting started with this season. And we have a long way to go, as you keep hearing me say, oh, and we'll have an episode about that. I apologize for continuing to do that, but hopefully that'll keep you listening. So anyway, I'm just trying to get Cody to quit jumping the gun on some of this stuff and assuring him I will have a story for him later. So anyway, guys, thanks a lot for listening, and we will see you next time. Yeah. 
podcast. So goodbye, so long. And this episode of the American oh. Hogs podcast yeah. was written by Troy Taylor and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. In each bi-weekly episode, we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. You can find the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you, you find this your on favorite YouTube shows or something? at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com and on See, YouTube. That doesn't sound like fun. Where we have show notes, more info listen, about the episodes, and to links at. to more from American Hauntings. Are you going to put like a picture of you? Because American then, Hauntings isn't oh. just a podcast. It's books, tours, YouTube videos, events, and more. And our main website is AmericanHauntings.net. And if you want even more for us, you can be a supporter of the podcast on Patreon. You can get bonus episodes yeah, I'm of the show, say thank you t-shirts, again discounts, thank you, great stuff yeah. in the mail, and more. Thanks to our supporters, we have upgraded our equipment for the show, and with continued help from you, we can dedicate more time and resources to creating even more shows in the future. Take a minute and check it out. We think you like what you find at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Be sure to get in touch if you have any comments about See the show, suggestions, reviews, jokes, and you still can't just be confident. Oh, I know. Sorry. And, or just to tell us what you really think of us. Uh, we, no, we're reachable no. via how email. how much you hate it when I talk. And on I Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and by Carrier Pigeon. And Telegraph. And Telegraph. we're going to do telegrams, too. Yeah, tele- Does anyone like to send us a telegram? That would be awesome. See, I know, and I know what old things are. I know what yeah, a telegram see, is. Yeah, telegram works. Right. Until next time, goodbye. So long. See you later. See you later. Cool.